welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 27th of November 2017 and this is episode 42. On this week's show, I'm talking to Charles Barrington about his grandfather's service during the First World War. Charles's grandfather, Guy Mead, served as a regular officer in the artillery throughout the First World War. His book is titled What Did You Do in the Great War, Grandfather? and has recently been published by Hellion. I spoke to him earlier this week. Hi Charles, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you begin by giving us some background of how you became interested in the Great War? Well, I suppose, obviously, I'm... I've always loved history, first point. Second point, I was extremely fond of my uh, grandfather. Third point, uh, from a very early age, I knew that he'd been involved, but I didn't really know how or why or when. Um, And it sort of became a bit of a, you know, a mystery that I feel I wanted to solve. And I'm conscious of the fact that we are the last generation who knew people who fought in the First World War. We've lost the ones who actually fought a long time ago. And I've also done a lot of work with people in the uh, army. I haven't been in the army myself, but I've made a lot of friends in the army. And the whole thing came together when I became partly retired with with the opportunity to start to do the research. And it sort of built from there. So could you start by giving us um, some background on your grandfather, Guy Mead, and how and what you remember about him? Well, I remember him as a lovely grandpa in a tweed coat and pipe and slippers type of thing. <laughs> and like so many people of his age and type, he never spoke of what he had done. Of course, by the time I knew him, he'd had a stroke and he was a lot slower. He was still um, perfectly compost. You know, we, we never discussed it. It was never a question that, the, you know, as a young child, one asked. There he was. He was grandpa. And and. and I loved the house they lived in. It was a very romantic Elizabethan farmhouse. Um, and it was an extremely important part of my childhood. So what was your grandfather's background and family? Where did, they, where did he grow up? Uh, he grew up in, Al- in Alverstoke, which is a um, suburb of Portsmouth. And his father, Warren Mead, was a doctor. The Meads are a uh, long-established um, Anglo-Irish family, actually and were padres in in southern ireland um over many years and warren mead my great-grandfather came over as a doctor uh, to live in portsmouth and that's where guy uh, grew up so your great-grandfather that's guy's father he was a naval surgeon in at the haslar barracks if i'm correct you're partly correct and partly incorrect and my the, the other side of the family which were the other side of which was guy's wife may her father was Surgeon Commandant of Hasler Hospital, so, and his name was uh, Howard Todd, Honorary Surgeon to the King. And he was Commandant of Hasler between 1911 and 1913. So we have medical men on both sides of the family in that sense. And of course, um, they probably met in social circles in and around uh, Hasler and Elberstoke. So... Before the war, Guy chose to join the army. Do you know why he did that? Um, he was the second youngest of um, uh, seven children, and probably that would have been a perfectly normal thing for a younger son to do. I have no evidence or no, there's, there's nothing to tell me precisely why he joined the army. 
but I think it was, you know, a good career opportunity at that time. And obviously you've alluded to a guy's wife um, who he met before the war. Can you tell us a bit about yeah. how they met? Well, we don't know, but we, we as I said, um, May's uh, father was Surgeon Commandant at Hasler, a very respected senior uh, naval officer on the medical side of, of the Navy. And the Meads lived in Alberstoke just down the road, so they might well have met there. They could have met through the offices of Guy's younger brother, Horace, who is this wonderful romantic figure who was killed on the Somme in, uh, in, in, in 1916 but uh, who was the socialite in the family. And one of the, one of the bits of evidence I've got, as it were, about the life they led was this marvellous album that Horace created from his photographs of the period before the First War, entitled Sunny Memories. And there are these wonderful photographs of them playing golf, um, playing lacrosse, sailing, uh, visiting houses. And Horace clearly was, was, was an Edwardian uh, young man about town. And he might well have uh, been the one who created the social link. The other alternative is that when Guy was posted up to St. John's Wood uh, as a young officer in the horse artillery, uh, he was presented at a levee to the king at St. James's Palace. And it's perfectly possible that he could have met Howard Todd, who was honorary surgeon to the king, during that sort of social engagement. Now, Guy actually had quite a, uh, quite a stellar career in the artillery before the war. What did he do? He, when you say Stella, he, he never achieved senior rank. He was still only a, um, a lieutenant when the, when the war started. But he became heavily involved in what was then called the Riding Troop. And this is a theme that runs through the book. It's a theme that ran through his life. Um, his love of the horses with which he worked uh, and the people he met uh, as a result of that. And, and, of course, the Riding Troop was the precursor to what we now know as the King's Troop. It, was only, uh, it only became known as the King's Troop, as you know, in memory of King George VI, uh, uh, just after the Second World War. But at that stage, it was the Riding Troop, and the honour of being the Riding Troop was that it circulated amongst the batteries in the Royal Horse Artillery. Now we come to the war, and you cover three distinct phases of his career during the Great War. Firstly, his uh, deployment with the initial BEF in 1914. Secondly, his time with the 61st Division at the Battle of Fromel in 1916. And finally, his experiences during the German Spring Offensive in 1918. Could you tell us about each of those phases of, of his military service during the First World War? Yes, he was under um, Henry Wilson's meticulous mobilisation plan. He was part of the first phase of the deployment of the BEF in 1914. At that stage, he was with J Battery and he was in charge of J Battery's ammunition column. So he was in close support of the battery uh, as they deployed to Mons and as they retreated all the way from Mons back to the Marne. And then, of course, um, turned, advanced as far as the Aisne and then moved all the way up to Ypres. And he he was in the in in the thick of the Battle of Ypres. So he, he was very much involved in what is a completely fascinating and perhaps slightly missed out phase of the First World War when it was still very much a war of movement. Uh, the Germans were advancing down through Belgium and France, and the BEF retreated and then turned to fight them and then redeployed all the way around back up to Ypres and created the basis of the Western Front as we then know it for the rest of the war. It's, um, it's a fascinating period of the war 
And the more I read about it, the, the more I find it interesting as, as a precursor to the rest of the war. Um, there's a wonderful book written by Richard Holmes called Riding the Retreat, uh, where he actually rides a horse and the route of the retreat. And it's, a, it's a lovely book to read if you're interested in that piece of the war. No, it's, it is an amazing time. And I think, you know, if people don't realise how many, how serious the casualties were from the, the regular armies and the regular units of the BEF and the number of huge losses that the, that the army suffered during that time. That, that's exactly correct, Tom. And, and, and of course, the interesting thing is that the BEF, as was deployed in August 1914, was very largely destroyed by the time you get to the end of the Battle of Eat. And the British Army had to be completely rebuilt, firstly, from the uh, reserve uh, battalions that had stayed in England uh, under Haldane's original army reorganization after the Boer War. And it was those reserve battalions, uh, territorials, that went out in 1915 to replace the BEF along the Western Front. And they were, of course, uh, they then suffered dreadful losses at Loose. They, in turn, were replaced by uh, Kitchener's new army, young, fresh recruits. And they, of course, were uh, then suffered the same fate when it, we got to the Battle of the Somme. So it's these three waves of men, as it were. First the BEF, secondly the Territorial Regiments, thirdly the New Army, that were exposed to the to the true later horrors of, of the Western Front. And then your grandfather then moved to the 61st Division, which I think was a New yes. Army Division. That's correct. They needed people with experience to go into the Territorial Divisions to, to give them the experience. And based on his uh, having survived, uh, amazingly, the, the BEF campaign... He became Brigade Major Royal Artillery in 61st Division. So he was responsible during the whole of 1915 for uh, getting them uh, up to fighting standard, you know, making sure the horses and the artillery were all uh, there, that they were all doing what they were supposed to do. They were trained. And he went over to France with them in uh, at the, I'm trying to think whether it was the end of 15 or early 16, I can't quite remember. So that they were deployed, ready for the great campaigns of 1916. His part in that was Rommel, and his younger brother Horace was, by that time, had joined up as part of the new army with the Royal Sussex. And Horace was, and you know, one of the sort of little, the family stories at the heart of the book, in a way, is that Horace was killed on the Somme within a couple of days of Guy being involved in the Battle of Frommel, 40 miles away up the front. Now, the Battle of Frommel, I think, took place in June um, as opposed to July, and it's still relatively one of those engagements which is relatively unknown uh, in terms of the historiography, because obviously the Somme looms much, much heavier in the public um, mind. Can you tell us about Guy's role at the Battle of Frommel? Yes, you say Frommel is, 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 is little known here in England. That is quite true. Where Frommel is a very big deal is in Australia. Uh, and the reason for that is that the action at Frommel was partly um, 61st Division, but partly two divisions of the Australian Imperial Force newly arrived on the Western Front. And Frommel was designed as a diversion. So the, the idea was to create an attack at Frommel, which is about 40 miles north of the Somme, to divert German reinforcements away from the area of the Somme. And there's been huge amount of historical discussion since as to whether this worked, whether it didn't work, whether it's justified, whether it wasn't justified, should it have ever happened, shouldn't it have happened. Um, it, it's, from Ellis engagement in the context of the Somme, there were far fewer people involved, the casualties were lower. But in terms of the rate of casualty, it was an appalling loss of life in a very short space of time. And it typifies the problems of using fresh, raw, inexperienced recruits in a situation where you cannot judge whether your artillery 
artillery bombardment has actually destroyed the trenches on the other side of the line or not. And in this in this case, of course, they had not. And so they uh, advanced on what's called the Sugarloaf Salient, which is a piece of ground in the middle of, uh, of the Fromel battle area, and were mown down by the German machine guns with appalling efficiency. So what was uh, Guy's role in that battle? He was, I think, on the staff of the 61st Division. And was he responsible for the artillery planning? He was he was responsible for the artillery planning. He was responsible for bombardment. He was responsible for ensuring that the artillery was properly uh, dug in um, and for the deployment of the various artillery units, some of which didn't arrive when they were supposed to, some of which arrived late, some of which couldn't be dug in because the weather was very poor. The actual the uh, HR for Fromel was delayed two or three times, giving the, uh, the, the Germans, of course, plenty of opportunity to see what was going on and to prepare. So he would have been responsible, yes, for the artillery barrage uh, that was supposed to have created so much damage before the battle. And did he reflect on the problems he encountered at Fromel? No. And of course, this is a, a one another interesting theme. When one has been involved in something like that, and I cannot possibly imagine what it must have been like, you know, to what extent do you analyse afterwards? We live in an age now where there's instantaneous analysis by all sorts of people who probably have no idea what they're talking about, never mind the people who do. In, in those days, I suppose that didn't happen. It's very interesting to read some of the records. A fascinating aspect of writing the book was reading his unit diary, which I discovered in the National Archive, which gives me his sort of hour by hour, day by day activity through the whole of 1915, 16 and 17 and into 1918. And he makes no, uh, he, he records in great detail what happened in terms of getting the artillery ready and the barrage uh, organized ahead of Fromel. There is no record in the unit diary of the after effect. But what there is in the unit diary is a very uh, lengthy and extremely positive report by the general who was responsible for the artillery after Fromel saying how well the artillery had performed, which is not exactly what you would have expected under the circumstances. You mm -hmm. could say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But you could also say that it's probably, to put it at its simplest, an example of how they simply didn't understand that artillery didn't work in that way. And if you gave the other side plenty of notice of what you were doing, they were ready, they were prepared. People need to think of the, you know, from Mel and, and the early days of Somme in terms of the Br British Army had about eight days battle experience through the whole of 1915, where they had, you know, maybe 70, 80 days during the Somme. So the ex their experience levels at the beginning of the Somme were so low when you think about what the French army had been through and, and, and also the German army. And in some ways you can understand why they were so unprepared. It wasn't incompetent or stupidity, it was the fact that we've not done this before. Absolutely, it's the case that they hadn't done it before. And it's absolutely the case that they simply didn't understand the way in which the attack was going to be repulsed by, by somebody on the other side who was prepared for it. And that they, they hadn't worked out how to deal with that. Later on in the war, funnily enough, the Germans were much quicker to learn this lesson than we were. They realized that, you know, small fainting attack, you know, uh, were much more effective. Great big frontal attack didn't work. And it took them a very long time to work that out. Now, the next phase of Guy's career that you, you focus on is his experiences during the German offensive, March, April, May 1918. What was his role there? 
he he was still, and, and this is quite interesting, he was still in the same role. He was still Brigade Major Royal Artillery for 61st. And so the war diary that I referred to in the National Archives gives an extraordinary account, which I should think is probably quite rare, of a single officer uh, in a particular post through nearly over three years of the war. So a, a great a considerable level of continuity in terms of understanding what he did. So he was still 61st Division. 61st Division, after Formel, was moved around to various places on the front. But it, it missed Combray. It missed a number of the other major. It missed uh, Passchendaele. But it, where, where it was stationed was at St. Quentin, which, of course, was in the teeth of what we now know as Operation Michael, which was this fantastically well-organized, uh, extremely a significant German attempt in early 1918 to push the British into the sea. It very nearly succeeded. They were, the 61st Division was on the, on the hill just outside St. Quentin. I've been there. I've stood on the hill where um, where his batteries were. And, you know, it's a pretty extraordinary thing to try to imagine what it must have been like. Churchill described it as the greatest onslaught in human history at that time. So it was a far greater onslaught than our, than our artillery barrage at the beginning of the Somme. And the, the, the purpose of Operation Michael was basically to do exactly what we were trying to do at the Somme, which was to, to demolish the, um, the British forces on the other side of the line and then advance through as quickly as possible and push them into the sea. 61st Division was pushed back about somewhere between 5 and 10 miles on the first day. I know, incredible. I mean, again, again and then the British Army goes into, a, into another retreat, which um, I think Guy took, took part in. So how did he reflect on that? Well, again, he, that, that, of course, by then he was much more experienced. By then they, their whole supply chain was better organised. Their communications were much better. One of the, Again, you referred earlier, Tom, to um, the inexperience. Of course, technology... What war does is it, it, it promotes the development of technology, technology very fast. And you may recall that in the early part of the book, I show a drawing of Guy describing how you should communicate when your telephone line is cut, i.e. two sticks, a long bit of wire and two tins. By the end of the war, they actually had telephone exchanges. They knew what was going on. They could speak to batteries on the front line. So their ability to recover from the retreat in the face of Operation Michael was completely different to their ability to manage a retreat and recovery earlier in the war. And of course, the other the other salient point about Operation Michael is that the Germans knew this was their last throw of the dice. If they didn't win this, they were going to lose the war because they were running out of men and supplies and machinery and food and everything else. I know, again, it's another part of the historiography of the First World War, which is largely overlooked. You know, it's again, it just changes our complete understanding of, of this idea of static warfare. Absolutely. And of course, it's, re it's then replaced by the, uh, arm the British Army under the much maligned General Shute and others becoming a very efficient, very fast moving uh, pursuit of the German retreat because the Germans effectively having blown themselves out as a result of Operation Michael and, the, and Gneisenau and Blücher, which were the subsequent elements of Operation Michael. The, the Germans are exhausted. They have run out of men and supplies and the British Army pursues them uh, with great efficiency uh, all the way back to Mons. And does um, Guy reflect on, on that sort of last four months of the war which, were, which have become known as the Hundred Days where the Allied forces were generally pushing forward with the French and the Americans in the south and the British in the north? He, he doesn't reflect on it because, uh, don't forget, um, war diaries are, are, are relatively dry affairs. They're, they're designed to be you know, the uh, report on what the unit was doing from day to day. But what the diary does show very clearly is that the tone 
of what he was doing, what what instructions he was issuing, and how he was telling people to react to the situation in front of them changes substantially from sort of, um, we don't really know what's going on, to we have a, a target here, we have an objective, we're being told to react on the ground quickly and use our initiative. It's a very different, uh, it's a very different style of response at that stage of the war. I think so. And so we come to the armistice. So what does Guy do after um, the Great War? Okay, um, then he sort of, in a sense, he has this wonderful golden twilight for his career. Having survived the war and, the, and these extraordinary experiences, he, he spends a little bit of time up in York, where he's the uh, artillery commander uh, for the Northern Division. But he then gets uh, given command of D Battery, uh, RHA, and is sent out to India. Uh, he spends a year in India commanding D Battery, and he then spends uh, four years in Egypt commanding D Battery. And of course, he's living this wonderful end of empire life, particularly in Egypt, where they go to the races and they play golf and, you know, they have uh, all sorts of sporting and riding competitions with the other batteries. And he's in Egypt during a particularly fascinating time when Allenby was negotiating Egypt's independence, when Howard Carter was digging up Tutankhamun. You know, it's, a, it's another really interesting little insight into that period of history. And then reflecting on the book, what sort of reflections do you have on Guy's sort of um, life and times? It's terribly hard, Tom, isn't it, to dissociate the the family, as it were, from the history. And and this is not meant to be a pure history book. It is much more uh, uh, trying to paint a picture of, of somebody's life over that period. I mean, he was, I can't think of a better way of putting this, he was a professional soldier. Uh, he did the job that was put in front of him. He didn't achieve... He didn't achieve particularly, he became Commander Royal Artillery in Aldershot at the end of his career, which is, you know, it's a very senior and significant role. But he didn't achieve great rank. He wasn't a general. He was, by all accounts, uh, from all the evidence, um, an effective professional horse artillery officer. The thing that he loved over and above everything was um, that relationship with the horses. So, Charles, obviously we've got Christmas coming up, and I think this would make an ideal Christmas gift for, for, <laughs> for many members of the family. Where can people get your book from? Uh, Amazon. <laughs> or they can get it from, um, uh, obviously, from the publisher, from Helion. But um, I think it will, it's going to be stocked by, it would be stocked by any bookseller in this day and age. Of course, all you have to do is ask, because they can go on their machine and order it for you. Great. Charles, thank you very much for your time. It's a great pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>